This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Today on the Ether Review, we look at Polychain Capital, a pedigree digital asset hedge fund founded by Olaf Carson Wee, first employee of Coinbase, and Ryan Zura, energy and finance guru, combined with Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures Capital. Olaf and Ryan are here to explain. What's the story behind the creation of it? How did this all come about? Yeah, so I actually, with a friend, registered the domain name altcoinportfolio.com in 2014. Um, this uh, friend of mine is now an infrastructure engineer at Coinbase. And so I've been thinking about, or I had been thinking about, this idea of a fund which invests exclusively in protocols instead of companies for a long time. Um, however, I thought the space was immature uh, for that. I thought it was too early, um, and I, I frankly didn't really like most of the technologies I saw outside of Bitcoin. Um, once Ethereum launched, um, because you know Coinbase actually tried to recruit Vitalik way back when, when we were maybe eight employees, um, it was great that he didn't join because he went on to create Ethereum, but... Um, we uh, were watching it very closely at Coinbase, or I was at least, uh, the Ethereum Genesis block and just the early network, early applications. I was very excited about MetaMask around that time. And, um, you know, as Ethereum got more and more traction, uh, I was pushing internally at Coinbase for people to look at this more and more. And I was actually doing internal education sessions about uh, smart contracts, Ethereum, uh, the DAO, and all that kind of stuff. And once Coinbase added Ethereum, that was really when I realized that this idea of a multi-chain uh, fund was possible. And, and really, there was a viable market for this, because I'd been, with my own personal account, investing in these you know, so-called 2.0 protocols for a while. Um, like MasterCoin, Counterparty, um, looking at things like NXT. So um, that was really the push for me. I'd been at Coinbase for three and a half years, and I was ready to branch out and create my own project. So um, yeah, that, that's, that's really the motivation here. How did you find yourself in the picture, Ryan? So um, I have been following the Ethereum ecosystem literally since day one. Um, you know, I, I remember uh, Vitalik's presentation at VTC Miami in, in 2014, like it was yesterday, um, and instantly was sort of very taken with um, the concept of, of smart smart contracts and um, this blockchain 2.0 um, concept that that Vitalik had presented. So participated in the crowd fund, and then um, more and more had was spending my I was spending my time looking for projects to deploy capital uh, into in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, and just, you know, cold calling different entrepreneurs up and talking with them about their ideas and um, and then trying to deploy capital where where it made sense. Um, so I was lucky enough to, to participate in, in some of the early projects in, in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, and like many other projects, I, I kind of called Olaf up and we talked a, lo a long time um, about his thesis and which sort of mirrored a lot of the things that I was thinking about um, with respect to the space at the time. Um, so much so that we were kind of finishing each other's sentences and, and, and sort of really were, were we really aligned on, on where we thought this space was going and just the potential for entrepreneurs to raise capital in a more efficient manner, but also develop a community around their blockchain enabled projects. And then also for investors to have uh, more liquidity and, and often more transparency with respect to early stage companies. And it was just sort of a, a really interesting uh, mix. And uh, so I started out, you know, proposing to, to invest in Polychain 
but then just found myself so interested in what Olaf and, uh, and his team were, were doing that, um, you know, I became more and more involved with the, the day-to-day operation and, and looking for interesting projects to, to deploy capital since it was something that I was sort of doing as a side job for, um, for over, a, over a year, almost two. Um, I'm going to actually switch back to you, Olaf, quickly and uh, diverge a little bit from uh, from the subject of our conversation to ask about what's happening at Coinbase. So recently, Fred Ursa moved on, and you've moved on as well. What is, is this? Is this really a case of of the original uh, the original team at Coinbase uh, moving further afield to look for more avant garde pro- projects? Um, so yes, in short. Uh, I, I think it's a testament to Brian's hiring ability. So Brian, the CEO of Coinbase, um, is actually an amazing recruiter. And um, he just has a, a, a spectacular ability to see talent in people. Um, I think, you know, neither myself nor Fred were in, in a way exceptionally qualified on paper. Uh, myself in particular, for the positions that we were hired for. But I think Brian um, saw kind of innate ability in us um, that others maybe didn't. What that meant, though, was that he's also hired, you know, in, in this first group of employees to really build this company around. He hired people that in their heart were entrepreneurs, uh, which is exactly who you want to hire for the first, you know, five or ten people of, of your team. Um, so I, I look at the really early Coinbase employees, and every single one of them has that sort of entrepreneurial fire within them. Um, now, this is great for building a company. I, I think maybe the downside is that as that company scales, eventually, you know, the entrepreneurial fire uh, burns too hot, and and people leave to start their own companies. So um, I think. You know, I, I view it as like a testament to Brian's ability to hire and really that um, he hired people that were um, so passionate about the space that they actually at some point felt the need to leave and, and actually build their own company. So with that in the rearview mirror and Polychain Capital, uh, a uh, an entity that's currently being built, how does that affect does that affect your current hiring? And and Ryan, how do you feel uh, personally that uh, that idea relates to your involvement in uh, in your prior projects and in Polychain Capital itself? Well, I mean, my my prior background is I've I've been building renewable energy projects around the world um, for about the last decade. So it, there isn't a a lot of um, say applicability outside of, of of kind of general management and corporate governance um hiring people things like that um today we're spending more time working with you know young upstart entrepreneurs um trying to find great talent and then uh and then help them in the different areas where where we can offer some some expertise um but the certainly the angel investing that I've been doing for the last couple of years in the space has has, has definitely been applicable, and some a lot of the lessons learned um, through that process um, continue to, to to be useful for us every day. Looking you know looking for new and exciting projects. And Olaf, how has has this affected your hiring uh, in in the development of in the development of the staff of Polychain Capital? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean. You know, Ryan was kind of running around making these deals himself um, before, you know, really joining Polychain. So to me, I mean, Ryan was already doing this with his own personal account um, and and has a, a really fabulous vision for how this will all play out um, and, and also a very long term vision, realizing that we are in a marathon here um, and that this is going to continue to expand for a decade um, and, and beyond a decade. But there's there's really a lot of growth to be seen in the next 10 years. So I, I think, you know, Ryan is kind of this uh, perfect example of someone who kind of as an entrepreneur was already doing this. And I've sort of just 
annexed his his talent uh, to do it on behalf of the Polychain Fund um, with a, a little bit of a larger amount of money. But ultimately, Ryan's just doing what he was doing before. Are Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures actively involved in Polychain Capital? Uh, definitely. So, you know, beyond just contributing capital uh, to the fund, I think they're very much interested in staying in touch with us to both follow the space and also provide valuable connections both within the kind of blockchain industry and outside of it um, to, for example, investors or other people that can be helpful with the operations of the company. And this has been, you know, to, to Olaf's credit, um, they've been very key strategic partners. Like when we reach out to, to potential portfolio projects, um, there's a certain amount of credibility that, that comes along with having these very well-respected, you know, class leading, um, venture firms, uh, behind Polychain Capital. Um, and again, that's, that's credit to, to Olaf's ability to communicate, um, this compelling vision about where this space is going and, um, and convince these, you know, the, these large venture capital firms to to allocate capital here um, and allow Polychain to to go out and and seek you know blockchain enabled projects so that they these firms have exposure to this important movement um, without needing to get into uh, individual projects themselves um, and it, it's it's been synergistic on on both sides both for raising capital and also for um, onboarding new projects. So where is all this going? Okay, so I, I, I think a lot of people are familiar with the term Web3, which is kind of this, this idea of a fully decentralized web. Um, so, you know, really pragmatically, the way I look at it is right now we're building the low levels of a decentralized internet stack. So when you look at, say, Twitter, the company, um, it's built on a large stack of technologies. Um, in order for the end user experience to be there, um, you know, there, there has to be the underlying internet, like TCP IP protocol. Um, you have to have the server configured. You need a DNS system um, so that you can go to twitter.com instead of the IP address. Um, and then you need like a login or, or identity system built on top of Twitter. So when I look at all of these components, um, I think right now we're in this stage of actually compartmentalizing each of those low levels of the internet stack and building the kind of web three or decentralized version. So exciting projects like um, IPFS or, or MetaMask or Uport are kind of building the slice of that um, centralized web in the kind of Ethereum blockchain or smart contract or, or Web3 environment. Um, and by the, once that stack is built, and, that, and that'll take a while, I think for us to have a really robust uh, decentralized stack that's easy for an application developer to then build a, a decentralized application on top of, I, I think we're we're maybe a year or two out from that stack being uh, really robust. Um, once that stack is robust and easy to use for um, a normal kind of application developer, then we're going to see a massive um, proliferation of protocols that actually compete with centralized companies. Um, so most of the major web services of the last 15 years were built by um, aggregating a massive network of users um, building relationships between those users and then actually extracting rent from that platform. Um, so this is the model of Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, eBay, uh, Airbnb, Uber, um, you know, any, anything, any of these major web services of the last 15 years were really built with this structure. Um, so when you build this in a Web3 format, though, um, all of that value actually goes back to the users of the protocol instead of the owner of the platform. Um, so this is like it, with the growth of uh, the Bitcoin market capitalization and the Ethereum market capitalization, that wealth was actually um, that wealth actually went to the holders of Bitcoin and Ether. It didn't go to 
you know, the CEO of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Inc., right? Um, and so this is a really, really different format uh, of wealth generation is that the equity owners are the users and the, the users of a peer-to-peer -peer protocol actually own that protocol. Um, so that's really exciting because we're going to see Uber the protocol and Twitter the protocol and Facebook the protocol compete with the centralized web service, the, the kind of counterpart. Um, but even beyond that, you know, I sometimes feel like when I'm comparing these decentralized protocols to centralized companies, I feel like um, it's the early internet and I'm saying, you know, the internet is like a digital library, right? Um, well, we all know now that what was cool about the internet is not just that it brought uh, libraries, for example, online, but actually that it enabled all sorts of unimaginable behaviors um, and relationships between people and businesses and all sorts of things. Um, and I actually think we're at a similar place now where um, what I can come up with is Twitter the protocol. Um, but really what's exciting to me, and this might sound a little hand wavy, but it's the things that are sort of unimaginable. Um, that, you know, just similarly in the early 90s, it would have been very hard to imagine Google and Facebook and, of course, Uber and Airbnb. It's very hard to imagine these before they exist. And um, I think we're at a stage right now where the technology is so new and there's so much potential uh, that we're actually looking at um, not only centralized, major centralized web services being disrupted by peer-to-peer -peer protocols, but also those peer-to-peer -peer protocols enabling new behaviors and uh, relationships between people that we've never seen before. So, I mean, this is the part where I ask, what unimaginable things are going to be? Uh, are we going to see emerge? But I know that's that's it's a ludicrous question. <laughs> well, and and yeah, that's that's why that's why I said you know it sounds a little hand wavy. Um, but I imagine many people intuitively feel this in the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, and I think that if, if you know, you were a developer working on um, the internet protocol stack in the early 90s, I'm sure they also felt a sort of intuitive sense that this was going to be much bigger than, than just IRC channels, right? Um, and I often feel that way. Like I will look at a prototype for a dApp and I feel like I'm just glimpsing the very tip of the iceberg of the future. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, and like, like I said, it, it's hard to say the thing that's exciting are things we can't imagine, right? But I really do think that's the case here. So, Ryan, what are the more interesting tokens you've seen emerge? And, I mean, as, uh, as someone who was an active investor, now let me rephrase that, as someone who is an active investor, what excites you in a uh, in a digital asset? So um, I must mention. Well, we we must mention that there's some some really interesting reading on kind of uh, protocol tokens versus uh, versus application layer tokens from Union Square Ventures from uh, Coinbase that you can that you can find on on Medium, and certainly um, just echoing. Olaf's earlier point, um, there will be very interesting value created at the protocol layer of, of this, this web 3.0 movement. Um, and, you know, obviously that's, that's one area where, where we're, we're really excited about, um, you know, about the potential going forward. Um, with respect to say application layer tokens, um, what we typically look for are tokens that are very central to the operation of that decentralized network, um, such that they couldn't be forked out, right? They're not just simply um, rent-seeking tokens. Uh, they actually provide a valuable service within the, the decentralized network or blockchain-enabled project um, that provides maybe a competitive advantage for that project. Um, so something like Augur with, uh, with the rep uh, is it, it is an easy example that, that comes to mind. Um, but typically we'll, we'll look for that, you know, protocol tokens that will, will have kind of outsized value contribution, um, from there, 
we you, you look for sort of scarce uh, valuable tokens that are central to the operation of, of a network and and thus thusly can't be forked out. Um, those are some of the characteristics that, that we look for, not getting too much into specific projects because um, there's so many in the space that uh, that are really interesting right now um, and have high potential. I, I think Ryan nailed it, which is that the number one thing people need to be thinking about when building a token is really the kind of equilibrium relationships um, in, in a sort of game theoretical sense that will result from this token being in the wild and reaching scale. Um, because I think the number one problem I see with some projects in the space is that the token, when it's not tied to the core action of, of the network that um, is being built, then you know the value of the network might grow, but the token doesn't go up in value. And so then as, as a user of the network, as an investor in the token, the token really doesn't make any sense in that case. So um, what I think is so amazing is how easy it is to create an ERC-20 token. That's what I love is that there's so many different experiments happening. And I think it will take a while um, and a lot of projects needing to fail and others succeeding and reaching scale for a lot of these answers around um, you know, the kind of game theoretic relationships of token holders being solved. Um, but I think for now, that's something, as Ryan, Ryan put it very well, um, that we look at very closely when looking at projects. And then to Olaf's point there, um, one other characteristic that, that, that is obvious that we look for um, is network effects. That as the network grows, uh, the token you know, the value of the token will grow corresponding to either innovation on top of that protocol or action through that network, whether it be throughput of, 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 of revenue or money or, or some, other, um, some other metric that allows, you know, the recognition of value in correspondence to uh, the expansion of the network. Um, and thus, you know, we always look for the potential for network effects. So I have a uh, I have a devil's advocate position that I, I want to uh, put to you guys, and I'd like to hear your right. your thoughts on. And this is uh, and I don't want to I'm kind of ham fistedly plagiarizing a good friend of mine, Oliver Bruce, who works in the in the sharing economy, and his point is that when we see these applications being built, a lot of the time they aim to disintermediate a critical uh, actor in a two-sided marketplace, a great example being Airbnb. So it seems like there's no cost of provision for Airbnb. It seems like, why don't you just put your house on the internet for rent, someone rents it from you, and everyone's happy. You know, you have this, uh, you have this mutual, uh, you have this mutual coincidence of once, right? That's that that's the over the econo the economists oversimplification of exchange but in fact there needs to be trust and often some degree of infrastructure in place in order for that exchange to happen a great example is ride sharing as well right so ride sharing you've got to be driving around incurring expenses uh, in order to provide that service and it's only these large multi multi billion dollar i mean how, how big is uber you know it's it's burning billions of dollars a year to keep those cars on the road in order to expand to a point where it can actually develop enough business to pay for the cost of provisioning the service that it intends to provide to the world so things like ride sharing it's i mean the the other part of it as well is there's and, and i'm going on here but there's this uh symmetric comp competition with a really great in the case of uh arcade city you know they're, they're choosing to symmetrically compete with an incredibly efficient and powerful uh business uh you know it, it it seems like there are many cases where efforts to decentralize existing uh existing businesses are being made that ignore the complexities of those businesses and and the fact that it's already a, a full market. I mean, what are you guys' views on 
some of these types of businesses and and do you have a perfect uh, decentralized service do, do you feel or is there a criteria you look for in a decentralized service that uh, that that makes you feel more attracted to invest in it yeah so so to to your point I think we definitely do not downplay um, what those platforms are actually providing so you know Airbnb actually really isn't just um, you know, a person who wants to stay somewhere and a person who's renting their house. It's, it's a whole platform with um, a network of users um, who have a search capacity, who have um, a stable identity and reputation that's managed by Airbnb. There's a payment service and uh, built into Airbnb, a dispute resolution side of this. Um, this is why when I, what I said before is, what we're really interested in is each of those narrow components being built in the decentralized stack. I think it's it's too early for Web3 to support uh, decentralized Airbnb or decentralized Uber. However, it's maybe not too early for Web3 to support um, just decentralized identity, right? Like a project like Uport or, um, you know, just decentralized server architecture like IPFS and, and Filecoin, right? So I, I think um, you need to have all of those narrow slices of the decentralized stack in place, and you need to combine them in order to get that more complex emergent behavior at the application layer. So I, I think that this is, this is why you need to really have that full stack, is because of the complexity of these platforms and really the amount of value that they really do provide users. Um, each of those individual components of what Airbnb provides needs to have a scalable decentralized version, which, and, and then at that point, you can combine that stack to build the final uh, user-facing application that provides a service that's per perhaps equivalent to Airbnb at a cheaper price because there's no middleman. So, um, yeah, I, I do, I agree basically with what you're saying. Wow, that was an incredibly prophetic statement. <laughs> yeah, now you, can, now you understand why I got so excited after having a few conversations with Olaf. <laughs> so the, the other thing, Arthur, that I, I, I really do want to talk about here is that the, the opportunity here, um, when we're talking about the market capitalization of all blockchain-based assets, um, so one way I like to think about this, if you really step back, is that when Satoshi Nakamoto solved the Byzantine generals problem, which was really an unsolved computer science problem, he for the first time created digital scarcity. And you know, always before that, you could copy paste in a digital environment. And for the first time, you had digital scarcity. So you have this unit of scarcity that's native to the internet. And it's also the only digital scarcity that's really native to the internet. Um, and we've seen that value grow precipitously um, from a very obscure project um, in 2009, 10, 11 into what it is today, which is a $20 billion market cap. Now, this $20 billion market cap, though, on a global scale of capital markets is still a rounding error. This is tiny. Um, you know, so... So to me, um, the amount of value that will be stored on various blockchain technologies, I see being in the trillions, absolutely. Um, and we are still at a very, very early stage here. Um, and you know, when you look at the value of many of these centralized web services, um, all of that value is built on the ability to rent extract from the network of peers that they're building. And when all of that value goes back to peer-to-peer uh, -peer users, um, we're, we're talking about trillions of dollars of wealth being created for users of web services instead of for the uh, you know, rent extractors that build these web service platforms. That, that's why I view this as such a breakthrough is that um, for these incumbents like, uh, say, Uber or Airbnb, suppose that we do get the application layer protocol that starts actually eating, chipping away at their business and actually building its own small network. Um, it is very hard for a private company to compete with a protocol. And I think what ultimately you end up seeing is what happened to media distribution companies with the torrent protocol. They basically all crashed 
And then, you know, after the torrent protocol and file sharing is is uh, popular, we, we saw other types of businesses emerge from the ashes, right? Things like Spotify or the iTunes store that could kind of exist in a post file sharing world. Um, but that in between state was just a whole industry turned on its head. Um, and I think we're seeing that now play out very slowly at the very early stages on a much, much larger scale. So let's uh, let's let's get into some some slightly more meticulous stuff. Can we divide digital assets into clear categories and and come up with definitions for those categories? So I generally divide things into two categories in my head. Uh, this is a pretty simple categorization, frankly. Um, one is a, a general purpose blockchain. So this is something like Ethereum or Bitcoin that's meant to really act as a platform for other types of behaviors and applications. And then application-specific tokens. And so these are, for example, a lot of ERC-20 tokens are trying to power a very specific peer-to-peer -peer network. So something like Gollum or, or Rep have a very specific peer-to-peer -peer network that they're building. Um, so I generally divide things into those two categories. I, I know it's pretty broad. What about you, Ron? Yeah, so the sort we've been discussing a lot the the taxonomy of of the space today, and certainly sort of the family tree of of blockchain tokens starts at the separation between the protocol layer and the application layer, and then from there. Once you get into, say, the application layer, um, there are a number of different, say, sectors uh, at that application layer. So we talked about Gollum, cloud computing, uh, decentralized exchanges, file storage, um, finance, gambling, gaming, identities is, is a big one, uh, messaging, payments, prediction markets, registries, social, stable coins, uh, supply chain and trade finance. Um, token portfolio management like Melonport, uh, wallets, and you can kind of further separate out the family tree from there. But, um, you know, at the base of it all, uh, I think we're pretty well aligned that um, that you, you start the separation between the application layer and the protocol layer. Uh, uh, are we going to see future categories, though? I mean, uh, is it, I mean, this, I mean, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a rhetorical <laughs> question, right? Um, and, and, and certainly future categories are probably going to be some of the most interesting, right? Because like Olaf said, very poignantly, um, some of the most interesting or, or many of the most interesting innovations we haven't even dreamed up yet. Um, and so I, I, I am very optimistic, uh, and hopeful that we see some really interesting new categories come up in this space. And those are going to be some of the categories that have, um, you know, that, that see significant outlier value creation, um, for the entire ecosystem. And, and, uh, you know, Ryan, to add on your point about things that are very hard to imagine being part of the future. Um, I, for one was, you know, obsessed with Bitcoin and actually wrote, uh, an undergraduate thesis on Bitcoin um, and, you know, was thinking about it nonstop for two years. Um, and I never even imagined in my wildest dreams what we're seeing happen with the Ethereum ecosystem and uh, dApps right now. Um, so to me, you know, I couldn't even predict basically two years ahead. Um, and so to me, people sometimes ask me what will happen in five years in the ecosystem. And to me, that's like an eternity. It feels like every week I see new things that I didn't know were possible. So um, I'm very excited for everything that's happening and excited to keep following this going forward. Yeah. And one of the most exciting things about the space is, I mean, I, I know of no other industry that moves at the pace that blockchain moves at. I mean, you can kind of go away for a week or two and come back and the whole world has changed. Um, and it's just it's, it's remarkable the pace of innovation and um, the number of new projects that pop up on on a regular basis, new novel, you know, interesting, very compelling innovations that are that are coming up all the time. Um, now, that is in part because um, our community is blessed with uh, a large group of tremendously thoughtful technologists, 
um, and and also business people that are very forward looking, willing to try new things, sort of break things as we go, develop, iterate, and and evolve. Um, but I, again, I just I challenge anybody to 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 show me any industry globally across any technology that moves at the at the pace that blockchain moves. It, it's remarkable. How would you define the risk profiles of app coins and uh, and protocol layer tokens, and uh, and how do and where do those differences uh, arise from? Yeah, so um, with the general purpose blockchains or or kind of protocol level assets, I think as an investor, what you're betting on is that it will enable many types of applications and many new types of use cases. So it, it has to be sort of differentiated from existing protocols in some capacity. And it also has to, um, you know, especially attract developers, I think, more than anything. Uh, whereas on the application-specific token or app, app coin layer, um, I think you have to think a lot more about the size of the market that it's addressing. They, I, and I'm by, by that, I mean the kind of incumbent market. So like using Gollum as an example, um, you know, the market size might be something like whatever the market size of Amazon Web Services or, or Microsoft Azure is, if it ends up competing with some of the computational services that they provide, um, or IPFS and Filecoin, you know, you're looking at um, potentially even a, a larger market that's kind of every server provider in the world. Um, so to me, you have to look at the incumbents in the market. What do their economics look like? It looks a lot more like the analysis that you would do as a venture investor um, thinking about a private company. Whereas with the general purpose blockchain, I, I think you're thinking more about developers and what developers will find useful. Because for the, for the application-specific tokens, ultimately the people using this um, are hopefully you know, sort of regular people. Um, and I use that term loosely, um, but yeah, like you're, you're thinking more, less about a developer platform and, and more about a real end use case that, that solves a problem. That, that's an excellent point by, by Olaf in, in, in the sense that for protocols and, and general use blockchains, one would hope, I, you know, we often have this, this discussion internally that over time, the value of a blockchain is somewhat correspondent to the amount of interesting innovation happening on that blockchain. And so, you know, that lends credence to the idea that, you know, certainly there's, we must recognize that in the space where the most interesting innovation is happening right now is in the Ethereum ecosystem and the IPFS ecosystem. Um, and, but then at the application layer, you can kind of distill it down uh, and, and make, you know, make a deduction about value creation. So, so for example, if we look at, at Augur, based on a, um, an assumption of throughput through the, you know, through prediction markets and that amount sort of bet over uh, X period of time, you can... Uh, distill down exactly what a rep should be worth if that rep, say, is if rep is making, say, one percent, and then and then market makers are, are making one percent, and, and it's sort of two percent cost to um, to users or or or, or gamblers on on the platform, and so that's a, that's a much easier way to arrive at a conclusion with respect to how to value that application token, whereas you know, with Tezos or Cosmos, Polkadot, um, Ethereum, and and to some extent Bitcoin, you have to try to project forward, you know, potential future use cases, and it becomes somewhat more speculative. So um, that's why we kind of reduce it down to okay, well, where's you know where's the best innovation happening, and that over time should hopefully be the the most valuable blockchain. What's your guys' outlook on Bitcoin? We have different opinions, so I'll let Paul go first. 
so, so generally, I think Bitcoin has proven its use as a sort of e-gold or store of value. Um, although I do think that Bitcoin, technologically speaking, is essentially falling behind. Um, the inability of Bitcoin miners to trigger SegWit, which I consider as an essentially no-brainer upgrade, as in there's really no um, downside to segregated witness, um, shows the, the serious problems that the Bitcoin protocol has with upgrading technologically. Um, so to me, you know, SegWit is is maybe uh, a key component of the Lightning Network. Um, and it, so it's really hurting like a whole future outlook um, of the technology to me. So um, that said, Bitcoin can still operate as sort of e-gold or store value or the ultimate offshore account or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so in that case, I think that Bitcoin will continue to see investor interest, speculative investor interest, simply as a differentiated asset class um, that that really has the highest market cap, uh, the least volatility, and um, kind of the you know the most security or the highest hash rate at least. Um, so I, I think that Bitcoin's price will probably continue to go up. However, I think Bitcoin's market share will continue to go down. Um, so Bitcoin's market share, and I mean market share as a there the the market capitalization of all outstanding units as a value of all blockchain-based assets. Uh, Bitcoin, you know, used to be at 97%. I, I think it's uh, right now maybe closer to 85 or 84%. Um, and I think that that trend will continue to go downwards. Uh, I, I would agree with with those points. But for me, I've, I, I, I mean, I, I, I sort of came into this through Bitcoin you take the plunge down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And, um, and so for a long time, I was very fond of Bitcoin. However, um, I think we must recognize that Bitcoin is suffering from quite literally a classic textbook case of innovators dilemma, um, where uh, sort of this religious dogma has overtaken, you know, rational discourse and, um, and, and, and the imperative to continually evolve and, and improve the product. Um, Bitcoin's killer app appears to be a speculation. And I haven't seen, I, I can't think of too many other sort of killer apps that, that, that uh, it offers beyond uh, speculation, which the, the volatility of it, uh, given that speculation makes it difficult for storing value confidently. However, uh, I agree with Olaf that even though you know Bitcoin has all these problems, will likely be marginalized as the as the entire space um, grows exponentially and, and Bitcoin maybe grows marginally, um, Bitcoin will probably you know continue to hold value or or, or even increase its value somewhat um, because well, potentially even from just a novelty perspective, right? Like if people, you know, collect stamps and coins and old Air Jordans and pay thousands of dollars for, for these these retro things, I could see a future where, um, you know, it's kind of fun and, and nostalgic to, to also hold, uh, hold a few Bitcoin now. That, wait, you know, wait, so you're comparing Bitcoin to Air Jordans? Uh, I'm saying that there's a future... Or there's a potential future in which um, Bitcoin's primary use case is potentially reduced to to novelty and and you know and those who seek nostalgia and holding um, old you know older products that have not evolved you know together with uh, with the industry in question. Um, now, is that going to be the case? I, I don't know. So what I do recognize is that is that Bitcoin is clearly suffering from an innovator's dilemma. Um, classic case. In fact, I think it it'll probably find its way into the into the um, textbook of the innovator's dilemma over time, and um, and that its killer app appears to be pure speculation, uh, which for me is probably the least interesting thing um, 
in this whole space of all of the interesting applications that we've been discussing here, interesting sectors that um, that that we've been talking about. Um, just pure speculation isn't isn't the most compelling or exciting for me at this point. What? what, what how do you respond to that, Olaf? Yeah. So the other thing that I would add to what Ryan said is what's what's so great about um, markets is you can kind of bet on on certain futures, right? Um, and so I think you know obviously Polychain is betting on a future where alternatives to Bitcoin, both on like the general purpose blockchain level and the application specific token level, uh, grow faster than Bitcoin, right? O otherwise, we should just put all our money into Bitcoin if we think that's what's going to grow the fastest. Um, so there are a lot of technologies coming out that are addressing the problems that are seen with Bitcoin. Uh, one really exciting project for us is, is Tezos. So um, Tezos is trying to build a protocol level governance mechanism. Um, and this protocol level governance mechanism, you know, they use a proof of stake consensus mechanism and essentially it's like one coin equals one vote. And so when you're deciding on something like the Bitcoin block size um, or the Ethereum uh, DAO hack, and, and there really is a decision between two futures, um, you let the holders of the token actually vote on what will happen, and then the chain will programmatically fork based on the votes of those token holders. Um, so, so what's interesting to me is that you can actually bet on on solutions to some of the things that are are problems with Bitcoin. Um, so, so to me, you know, a, a a bet on on something like Tezos is sort of a hedge that Bitcoin. Um, is in a sort of perpetual stalemate or perpetual innovator's dilemma. And that maybe something like protocol upper governance in Tezos, while of course unproven, um, is a potential solution. So I, I think you know the problems in existing protocols just drive people um, to make new ones. And then the market can sort of decide who was correct. Okay, so so protocols then. Tezos, Archain, uh, Polkadot, Definity, what are you guys' views on those uh, on those few? And are there any really interesting ones that I haven't mentioned? Cosmos certainly um, would be one that I would I would add in there, and then obviously Ethereum, uh, IPFS. But um, Ola, uh, yeah, I, I think you know there are, there are maybe some more at the fringes, but I think you definitely nailed uh, the major ones that we think about and look at. And so how, what are the futures that they represent? Yeah, so I, I think that I'm very excited about a future where it is very fluid to move between blockchains. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, so for example, in the Lightning Network, um, hypothetically, you're, you're trading valid signatures. You're, you're not really posting those transactions to the blockchain. Uh, when you're doing transactions in a state channel. Um, and what that means is as long as both parties are each connected to a node on two different blockchains, they can actually trade a valid signature from, say, Ethereum for a valid signature in, say, Bitcoin. So now with the Lightning Network, you can actually enable peer-to-peer cross-chain trading. Um, similarly, with um, parachain technology, which is kind of what Cosmos and Polkadot are working on, um, the parachain can actually see the state of Bitcoin and Ethereum. So the long-term um, potential here is for a smart contract on one blockchain to actually interact with the state um, on another blockchain. Um, so for example, I could build an Ethereum smart contract. Um, I could send Ether to it. Um, that smart contract could then view the balance of a Bitcoin address and it could say if this Bitcoin address um, sees, you know, if it grows to one Bitcoin, then release the Ethereum to somebody else. If in the next 10 minutes I don't see one Bitcoin in that address, then actually this Ethereum smart contract will send the Ether back to me because the other person, you know, didn't partake in the trade. So um, through parachains, you know, and the Lightning Network, you can actually have these peer-to-peer cross-chain trading, cross-chain interactions. So what I see as a long term here is that built into the wallet software, 
built into exchanges like, say, Coinbase, um, the totally fluid ability to move between um, assets and tokens on a protocol level. So, you know, getting a new asset won't mean signing up for an exchange, taking out your credit card or linking your bank account. This will be a thing of the past. Instead, if you want a token, you could, for example, boot up your computer, um, sell some GPU or CPU cycles on the Gollum network for a night, um, maybe mine something if it's a proof of work algorithm, whatever, earn, you know, five or 10 cents of some token and then be able to, in a peer-to-peer -peer protocol, trade that token for anything else um, and actually start participating in all this kind of Web3 architecture and application layer. So to me, that cross-chain future and that fluidity between chains on a peer-to-peer -peer level is, is massive because it means that um, you know, no longer are these chains kind of siloed. Uh, from one another. It's very easy to um, move between them. So I, I think that's one very exciting future that we see between maybe the Lightning Network or parachains or other technologies. Okay, I've got a good one for you guys. So consensus algorithms. Will we find something other than proof of stake and proof of work, both of which, in, uh, in both my opinion and in many other people's, are both highly deficient solutions? That's, that's very hard to say. I think um, maybe, you know, there's a, a project, um, IOTA, that's working on a sort of a tangle where in order to initiate a transaction, you have to validate two other transactions, and they've kind of done away with the idea of blocks. Um, I think it's a little early to say, you know, if that would work at scale. Um, so yeah, I you know I I probably yes I don't know what those are though. I'd actually be interested in your in your in your opinion regarding the inefficiencies of proof of stake because as I understand it, as we move towards proof of stake, uh, the way that that Casper is is approaching the problem, um, you know, general internet latency will probably end up being a greater bottleneck than the than the actual consensus algorithm. But so what so how do you see the um, inefficiencies in, in proof of stake? That would be interesting to, to understand. Well it's less the inefficiencies and it's more the fact that under proof of work, which I think is appalling itself, but I mean you know what what yeah, for sure. <laughs> that, that one that one, definitely on board for sure. Um, but at least those, the people uh, mining a network are forced to sell their stake in the network. Whereas take, for example, say, uh, you know, the, uh, the Ether whales, right? As the network becomes more and more valuable, they come under less and less pressure to sell their proportion of their stake in their, their proportion of stake in the network. The equilibrium is, uh, is kind of bent in the direction of, the uh, increasing stake of whales versus the, the distribution of wealth in the network itself. And the economics of Casper, uh, as expressed, the idea that we will bond and receive a return on bonded tokens will inevitably uh, incentivize everyone to bond every token they don't expect to spend in the debonding de period of, say, four months. And then ultimately what you find is the only... Uh, the only pressure for unbonding tokens, well, let's just let's oversimplify it and say just living expenses. And what you find is those are much proportionately much lower for the whales than they are for the uh, individuals who have smaller, uh, smaller stake in the system. And inevitably, as all of those unbonded tokens do not incur interest and accrue interest and the uh, and the ones that are bonded do you find that inevitably at all all of the stake finds itself over many many years winding up in the hands of a very very few very small number of people yeah certainly proof of stake lends itself towards increasing the genie coefficient over time um that's that you, we must certainly concede that that reality but it's a lot better than spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on, on, on wasted energy and, and capital expenditure on, on equipment. Um, 
Well, my, so, my argument would be that it's ultimately what, you know, over an infinite timeline we might consider a catastrophic disequilibrium because ultimately governance of the platform winds up in the hands of a very small number of people. And those few people have the ability to collude as well. So if you have just, say, three guys um, who hold a massive proportion of the network, they can... Uh, probably in a very short amount of time, have a controlling share uh, and the ability to determine what is and is not a valid transaction. That would be my point of view. I mean, same with, say, Definity, which has its, uh, and probably Tezos as well, with their, with their uh, governance protocols. Sure, it's all well and good, but if you have a trend towards centralization of, of stake, then you have a trend towards centralization of government. So, so the only thing I would say, Arthur, is I, I think it's important to look at, you know, what's the x-axis here in terms of actually how long would it take for for this stake to, because, you know, hypothetically, if everyone stakes every coin, everyone's proportion ownership of the network stays identical. Um, so really the only argument, you know, and as, as Ryan said, that it does increase the Gini coefficient only because the living expenses or ba- what I would say our liquidity needs of smaller holders is proportionally higher out of their pool of, of you know, tokens they're holding. And I think that's true, um, but I, I think it, it takes a very long time. So, I, you know, I don't think we're talking about 10 years suddenly, um, you know, all of the voting power in the system is held by three people. I, I think... We're talking about more like a hundred-year type problem, um, which you know I'm I'm kind of willing to move to a better system um, if if there's a cliff that far out in the future. And in this case, you know I I wouldn't view it as a cliff. I I think um, as Ryan said, it, it, it increases the Gini coefficient, but there's a a matter of um, of degree here. Like how long does it take, and and really um, how centralized does that get? Because I think both of these are very small. So it's over a very long time period that that effect is is uh, manifested. Also, if you're talking about a blockchain where a significant amount of innovation continues to evolve, um, the most efficient allocation of, uh, of capital for investors would likely not be in this perfectly competitive um, mining scenario. Um, and thus, you know, a prudent investors would seek to either, you know, diversify their portfolio uh, or invest in, in, in different projects that have significant potential. And that would be a force that would probably create um, more wealth among different parties over time, which would counter the force of the increasing Gini coefficient among, say, high-staking, um, high-staking miners uh, over time, as long as you, as long as you, essentially, as long as you've got good innovation on on the blockchain, um, that should be uh, that should be the most powerful force for the distribution of um, of wealth. Now, that can also increase the Gini coefficient quite dramatically, but um, not in the same way that just strictly mining would or to the same parties. All right. I'm, uh, I'm actually relatively satisfied with that answer. I've, it's something I've been grappling with more and more recently, right? Like, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to balance. It's a fair comment and, 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 and interesting uh, that you bring, bring this up. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, I love the commentary that, that you have in the space and, and, the, and the really interesting questions that you bring for, for all of us in the ecosystem to, to think about and, um, and ponder and discuss. Um, your, you know, your work here is, is very important. Hey, thanks so much. It means the world to hear that from, from you, Ryan. I mean, especially because you guys are really at the top of your game. And again, like you guys obviously actually get this. There's so much, there's so much hackery and uh, there are so many frauds around. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's really great to have well, I mean, the fact that you guys have are running a hedge fund, right? I mean, that that says it all. At the end of the day, money talks, and uh, and the fact that you guys have a clear vision of of the space is, um, well, it's a testament to your position in it. 
uh, well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Arthur. Okay, well, I think uh, I think that's probably enough, right? I mean, we've we've really uh, dug through all kinds of um, all kinds of subject matter here, and uh, but I'm sure we'll have uh, subjects to discuss in the future. Sure, definitely. Fantastic. And where can people find out more about Polychain? Um, you can go to the website polychain.capital, Though I'm afraid you won't learn a lot. <laughs> uh, you can also reach out to to. Uh, to one of us, um, my email is rzurrer at polychain.capital um, or find me on Akasha uh, at rzurrer because that's uh, a really interesting app um, that I like to use personally um, and and hopefully it continues to grow um, with the ecosystem. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if anybody wants to discuss anything, um, you know, I love a good chat about, about Ethereum and, and blockchain in general. Fantastic. Well, thanks a bunch, guys. I look forward to speaking with you in the not-too-distant future. Awesome. Great. Thanks very much, Arthur. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, Arthur. Nice. Take it easy. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email, contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.